0: This episode of Too Much Information is dedicated to the memory of Michael Ferguson, assistant floor manager of the Daleks and later a fine, fine director of many Doctor Who stories, The War Machines, The Seeds of Death, The Ambassadors of Death and The Claws of Axos and a very, very nice man to boot. Hello there. I'm Toby Haydock, and this is a podcast about a famous TV series, And if not this, extermination, then? Welcome to Too Much Information, which aims to tell you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, a television programme about getting into trouble, but kind of liking it. Whether you're discovering the episodes for the very first time, or you know your Magnadon from your Magna Carta, then you're extremely welcome to this odyssey behind the scenes, which aims to go through the series one episode at a time. In this edition, it's the beginning of Doctor Who's second year, the first episode to be broadcast in 1964, and the one that more people than ever before decided to watch based on the impact and word of mouth of last week and the emergence of a certain bunch of homicidal pepperpots. So join me, Toby Haydoke, as I give you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, The Escape, or even when it's static, there's definitely electricity. First broadcast on the 4th of January 1964 at 5.15pm. It starred William Hartnell as Doctor Who, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman, with Alan Wheatley as Temesis, John Lee as Alidon, and Philip Bond as Ganatus. It was written by Teddy Nation, produced by Verity Lambert, and directed by Richard Martin. It was watched by 8.9 million people, and the audience appreciation was 62. Susan prepares to return to her friends, but outside the ship she encounters a tall, attractive blonde man, Aladon, who apologises for startling her. The Thals are not mutations, but farmers in search of food, and they now wish to trade with the Daleks, whom the Thals had thought were all dead. It was Aladon who left the drugs for the TARDIS crew, and he now sends Susan back with a spare set, in case the Daleks try to take the first lot off her and hoping that she can act as arbitrator between the races, brokering a peace and trade agreement. The Daleks pretend to cooperate and trick Susan into enticing the Thals into the city. The TARDIS crew stage an argument and immobilise their Dalek guard, having discovered that the creatures run on static electricity and need to be connected to the floor in order to function. They remove the mutant from its shell and Ian sits inside, pretending to be a Dalek escorting the others as they make their escape. So, let's start with... The When 23rd of September, 1963 Terry Nation's serial is now committed to be the second Doctor Who story. Script editor David Whittaker has been impressed with Nation's storyline from July and the speed and efficiency of his work. 11th of October. Director Christopher Barry has had a look at the first drafts of Terry Nation's scripts and made observations about each episode. His thoughts are sent to Whitaker, with copies also forwarded to Lambert and associate producer Mervyn Pinfield. His general introduction also outlines what Barry thinks is the central difference between the Daleks and the Thals. For the story in general, he feels that there are two important facets to the Thals and the Daleks characters which should be borne in mind throughout all rewriting. The Thals should have a death urge, or at any rate little will to live, in contrast to the Daleks who, hideously mutilated though they are, wish to survive, dominate and perpetuate their ghastly species. They should be frightened for their ability or lack of it to survive, and it is this fear that that drives them to suspicious hatred of strangers. The Thals should be absolutely unable to take command of their own destiny or even of any situation in which they find themselves until our four come along and befriend are befriended by them. His concerns for episode three in particular are that Susan's last speech to Aladon is too ordinary. She should react more strongly. Later, in the cell... He feels that Ian should react to the fact that Susan has met and talked to the Thals. He queries the use or mention of rain at various points in the script. This might not be practical. There's a moment on page 21 which makes him question if the dialogue is in character with the scene. He also suggests that the Doctor should say We'll make it look as if you're holding on to us in the scene with Ian inside the Dalek. And he comments on the fact that the end of the Dalek, presumably, given that he mentions it being from page 38, this is where the crew whick the creature from inside its metal casing, is to be reconsidered, so clearly there has been some discussion about this key moment already. 16th of October Even though Barry is not directing the instalment that introduces them, he still takes an active role in the casting of the speaking Thals. For Stoll, their leader... Whose naive trust ends up getting him killed, he hopes for David Markham, the father of the makeup department's Sonia Markham. He has already established his science fiction credentials by originating the role of Professor Wedgwood in Target Luna for ABC in 1960, the producer of which was one Sidney Newman. For Varn, the mysterious Thal who encounters Susan and eventually becomes their chief after the death of Stoll, Barry casts Australian actor John Lee, whom he directed on every episode of the six-part 1962 drama series The Net, in which Lee was the lead immigration officer Jim Howarth. Lee has already worked with Hartnell on the filmed TV series The Flying Doctor in 1959. For Kurt, the exciting juvenile lead equivalent part, Dinsdale Landon is lined up. 31-year-old Landon already a respected actor who has played Pip in Great Expectations for the BBC, is about to appear in The Gentle Avalanche, the last play to be performed at the Royal Court Theatre before it is closed for refurbishment. Barry sees a number of young actresses for the role of Daren, or Darren, the sole woman allowed to speak in Thaldom, including five foot four inch blonde Julie Martin, who had written to him about the role on the 1st of October. A blonde Francis Bennett with bright blue eyes, observes Barry in his casting notes. Ultimately, though, he and Martin never work together, and on this occasion, the role goes to Virginia Weatherall, who has appeared in both Moonstrike and Walter and Connie for the BBC very recently. At this stage, the role is only imagined to last for two episodes. 22nd of October. Richard Martin, who is to direct this episode, is well and truly entering into the spirit of Doctor Who. Young, enthusiastic and outspoken, he is keen for the science fiction elements to be as imaginative as possible. In his excitement, he submits a memo to Lambert, Whitaker and Pinfield about the TARDIS. Perhaps, he suggests, the ship is out of time but in space, and that the entrance to the police box is like a gangplank or compression chamber and that an effort of the will is required to cross the threshold. If the requisite effort is not summoned, then the subject will simply find themselves inside a police box. Because, get this, the police box is an anchor for the ship in time and space, and without it the travellers would meet God or go mad. Doctor Who has only anchored the ship once, when he escaped from its own civilization, and if he tries to do it again, then it would mean the end of the series. As they have only just begun the series, and, let's be fair, probably for many other reasons, Lambert and co. do not take Martin up on any of his suggestions, and they also probably tell him to go and have a good lie down. 13th of November. Whilst sending out the scripts for the final three episodes, the production team instigates some name changes for the Thals, which have been worked back into the earlier instalments. The somewhat Germanic nomenclature, and Darren, is backpedalled upon, but don't worry, Nation will indulge his penchant for this many times in forthcoming years, and instead a consistent yet suitably alien set of names is substituted. Stoll becomes Temesis, Van, Alidon, Kurt, Ganatus, and Darren, Dione. 22nd of November After the recording of the second episode of this story, The Survivors, the Dalek props are returned to Shorecraft for alterations. The casters they are on are replaced by ones which, unlike the first ones used, which were fixed, are rotatable, allowing for much more fluid and versatile movement. So the Daleks in the escape are much more manoeuvrable than those first seen. 25th of November. Two days after Doctor Who debuts, rehearsals start for The Escape, with the show now a going concern. They're no longer walking in the dark. The Dalek props are still not available, as modifications continue at Shawcraft. Michael Summerton is dispatched to Uxbridge to help with mobility tests, giving the new casters a runabout. With the Dalek skirts which will come to be used in rehearsals, unavailable, the operators move about on chairs during rehearsal, as they had last week, to try to give some semblance of Dalek movement. Casting hasn't gone smoothly, but it's not bad news for Virginia Wetherill. Probably relieved that she isn't called Darren anymore, she's also doubtless delighted that she will now be in every episode from this one on, an increase of three instalments from the number originally planned. Markham and Landon, however, have not made it to rehearsals. Markham, whose appearance in the BBC's Teletale on the night of November the 29th may well account for his absence here, is replaced by the serial's biggest-named guest star, Alan Wheatley, hugely famous in the late 1950s for his role as the evil Sheriff of Nottingham in The Adventures of Robin Hood. Casting him against type as the almost too trusting and certainly benign Thal leader will certainly surprise and wrong-foot the viewers. Dinsdale Landon originally agrees to play Ganatus, but drops out when offered an episode of Zed Cars, which is due to be transmitted live on the 18th of December. The filming dates are just about manageable. Landon is required for Zed Cars only on the 3rd of December, but the Zed Cars rehearsal and studio dates clash with The Expedition, episode 5 of The Daleks, and so he makes the decision to sacrifice five weeks of work on Unknown Doctor Who for one episode of Well-Established Zed Cars. The Z Cars episode is entitled Wait For It, and Wait For It certainly is what Landon has to do when it comes to appearing in Doctor Who. In 1977, director Paddy Russell tries to get Landon aboard to play Lord Palmadale in Horror of Fang Rock, but it is not to be, and he only finally makes his debut in the universe as Doctor Judson in The Curse of Fenric, so having very nearly appeared in the second-ever Doctor Who story in the series' original run, he doesn't actually make it until the show's second-last classic series adventure, but better late than never. Philip Bond, who in 1961 had starred in BBC's Walk a Crooked Mile, is drafted in late in the day. He has most recently been on TV in Maupassant, Foolish Wives on ITV, broadcast on October the 18th, 1963, when the Thal's are being cast. He has also recently been on stage, playing in Harold Pinter's The Dwarfs, opposite future war doctor John Hurt. In the week before he starts rehearsals for Doctor Who, on the 17th of November, he celebrates the second birthday of his daughter Samantha, who, 43 years to the week, After The Escape is broadcast, will make her own on-screen debut in the Hooniverse as Mrs Wormwood in the pilot of the Sarah Jane Adventures Invasion of the Bane. 29th of November. The Escape is recorded in Studio D, Lime Grove. Lambert is in the box with Martin, and the two have a blazing row, after which the producer vows to no longer chip in, but to do her viewing in a separate room. When manhandling the Dalek prop for the scene in which it is pushed on the cloak, Hartnell cuts his finger on one of the rough edges of one of the metal bands around the midriff and so these are later filed down and or taped off to make them less lethal. The recording overruns and occurs a £58.16 and shillings overtime cost for the cast. 2 pounds 2 shillings for the main players guests and daleks and 3 pounds and 3 shillings for the thal extras the episode's provisional design budget is modest displaying a canny consolidation of costs after the necessarily work-heavy opening instalments of this adventure the escape is allocated just 50 man-hours and a special effects budget of 20 pounds this is the first episode of doctor who be made without any specially pre-filmed inserts. The only filmed material is the reprise of the cliffhanger played in from last week. There is a recording break after Susan offers the Doctor water, and later several during the overpowering of the Dalek in the cell. During this scene, the Dalek operator crouches down as the travellers look in. If you peer closely, you can spot him. After a recording break, Russell hops in. The Dalek he is occupying, by the way, is Dalek 3. The death of the Dalek had originally been planned as a special effects sequence but in the end the mutant is simply represented by an augmented gorilla glove half-glimpsed beneath the cloak as the picture fades into the credits. Having played the first Dalek sucker arm a couple of weeks ago, assistant floor manager Michael Ferguson might once again have played a Askerosian's appendage on its TV debut. However, Norman Stewart, the episode's production assistant, and, like Ferguson, a future director of the show, helming Underworld and the power of Kroll, also claimed that honour, so it may well have been him. We, alas, have no definitive answer to that one. After this, the Thals and the Daleks all get a week off, paid, whilst the regulars set about recording The Dead Planet all over again after the original is deemed untransmittable due to the bleed-in of studio talkback. 3rd of January 1964 The Daleks, on the eve of their second appearance on British television, have already become extremely popular. A measure of the long-term success and the short-term vision of the BBC is evidenced by a memo which states that Verity Lambert hopes to donate two of the Dalek machines to Dr. Bernardo's children's home. A charming and decent thing for the corporation to do, which comes via Verity Lambert, who has requested to Donald Wilson that she be allowed to do this. But it's partly bred from necessity. Jack Kine, head of the visual effects department, has said that there is only storage space for two of the serial's four Daleks. And so, at the end of recording, the remaining two will be destroyed, so they may as well be donated elsewhere. 4th of January, 1964. And so Doctor Who enters its second calendar year, and The Escape is the first episode of Doctor Who not to be broadcast in 1963. And clearly, over the week, people have been talking, because another 2.4 million viewers jump aboard the bandwagon to see what all the fuss is about. 6th of January, 1964. Lambert gets a confidence boost as the escape prompts a memo from her boss and mentor, the man whose brainchild Doctor Who was, head of drama, Sidney Newman. Congratulations are due to you and those working with you on the splendid progress being made on Doctor Who. Many, many people have told me how much they enjoy it. Despite the blonde fairies this last episode, the escape contained one marvellous thing which you should attempt to duplicate as often as possible. I'm referring to the demonstration of intelligence by our four heroes. You know, the way they figured out how the Daleks operated their machines and how to disable them. This is a pat on the back, subsequent to, history tells us, an initial displeasure from Newman about the story and all that it stood for. Bug-eyed monsters of the science fiction kind. Donald Wilson also reportedly objected, but was won round by the quality of the finished story. Turns out, Newman, too, is pretty happy with the Daleks. Whether he mellowed towards the blonde fairies, alas, history has not recorded. The what? The storyline for Episode 3, as part of Nation's original document which tells the whole story without episode breaks, begins the relevant action on page 11. A half-circle of figures stands back in the shadows. When Susan calls out to them, they respond with a gentle human voice. They are what remain of the Thal. Staying in the shadows, their spokesman tells Susan that they now number less than 100. Their anti-radiation drug wasn't strong enough to counter the radiation that came in the first thousand years after the war, and those who did survive produced mutations. The mutations eventually settled into a genetic pattern and now the race has become uniform but they are ashamed of their malformed bodies. When she catches sight of them, Susan sees that actually they are beautiful versions of Earth humans. They have been living on stockpiles of food from before the war, but they have nearly run out. To survive, they need help and that can only come from the Daleks, whom the Thals tell Susan, were the ones who started the war. Susan says she will tell the Daleks and returns to the city with drugs and the promise to get the Daleks to leave a message outside the city if they are prepared to help the Thals. At this juncture, Nation adds to the typed document in pen certain extra details. The first set of drugs have been left for Susan on purpose as the Thals knew that the radiation would affect the travellers once the rain fell, plus the instruction that she is to be given a cloak. The rest of the synopsis continues as the episode does, although the plural of Thals is still sometimes just Thal, with the Daleks promising to leave food when the rain has ended. But they also tell Susan that there will be guns there too, and that they intend to eliminate the Thals from the face of the planet. The time travellers, recovering now that they have taken the drugs, resolve to warn the Thals. We here get an early description of the Dalek machine. The eye of the suit is a television lens on a flexible shaft. The suit has no legs, the base being mechanised for movement. Their plan to immobilise the Dalek, and the reasoning behind it, is pretty much the same as in the finished episode, right up to the moment where this instalment's action comes to an end. Here, we are told, we get a glimpse of the frog-like animal that is the Dalek, as it lies unable to move in the cell. The section covering episode three finishes near the bottom of page 14 in Nation Synopsis. The design breakdown for this script is relatively simple, with most settings described and used in previous episodes. However, it is noted that various props are needed. Metal cups, a metal pail or jug, a box of files, a small table and stool appearing to be of metal, a stylus, a writing material that appears to be of metal, a long cape that is described as being of a rubber material or rubber plastic, there is a metal box with a lid, a carved stool, the microphone hidden beneath the grill is shown here and ripped from its wiring. There is a stiff metal folder which contains the metal writing material previously referred to. As for the Dalek machines, one of the Daleks must have a practical hatch in it, for one of the principals opens the machine and clambers into it. Other requirements are that there is a shot of a webbed hand underneath a cloak which opens and closes, and there is a montage effect showing a wire as it runs along the tops of various corridors. Changes from the rehearsal script include Aladdin's line, So the Dalek people have survived, which was originally, Daleks? People are living in the city? Susan's reply is originally a bit more detailed, telling the audience what they already know about the travellers not really knowing what the drugs are. After Susan has returned, the Dalek discussion is originally much longer. They have a conversation about Susan having a second supply of drugs which she tried to hide, "'And you took them?' queries the second Dalek. "'No,' replies the first. "'You've found a use for our prisoners, after all?' rejoins the second. The first Dalek also originally has a long speech about Susan signalling to someone as she entered the city, and the possibility that they, the Daleks, could analyse and reproduce the drug and get rid of their protective machines and move beyond the limits of the city. Aladdin's cape is not described in the script, until the scene in the cell after Susan has given the drugs to her friends. It is white and of a very thin material. The finished article is thick rubber in a mosaic pattern, which looks very striking and alien but is probably more useful at a swingers party than to wear in a jungle. A cut from Susan in this scene echoes the cut from the Dalek speech in the scene before giving much more detail about the Daleks finding and taking the second lot of drugs from her. She was to describe being made to stand in a very strong beam of light, as the Doctor has to in the previous episode, which flashes off and on and causes the Dalek to tell her to show them what she is hiding. She thinks it is going to keep the package from her, but then it seems to change its mind and she is allowed to keep the second drug supply. Susan's speech about the Thals which crossfades into the Dalek control room was supposed to play out as the camera travels along the wire attached to the camera in the grill, moving along through the corridors in close-up to emphasise how the Daleks are eavesdropping on our heroes. The blur and the shot of Susan from above, achieved using a mirror, filmed from the cell and now on the Dalek monitors, does the same job slightly more efficiently. Again, the Dalek dialogue is much more detailed in the rehearsal script. The first Dalek originally muses that the Thals' survival is dangerous and that they may be overestimating their food problem. They are very tenacious where life is concerned, observes the second Dalek. In the script, when the Thals are introduced, Dione is described as a beautiful young woman, whilst Temesis is a venerable and magnificent-looking old man. The Thal's formal greeting is described as touching each other's shoulders. The dialogue where they greet each other is slightly different in the script and presumably worked out in rehearsal, with Aladon pointing out the city to Ganatus and Dione asking about the ship being additions. Ganetus and another Thal have a small stool which they place down for Temesis to sit on. Much of the Thal dialogue is not in the rehearsal script, with most of the exchanges before Temesis asks Aladdin if he trusts the travellers being absent from the rehearsal script. The joke with Aladdin talking about working to the same end, which Ganatas gives a cynical, darkly humorous response to, is also a late addition. And we must assume that all of these amendments, adding character and colour to the Thal scenes, come via David Whittaker. In the scene with Susan writing to the Daleks, the script specifies that she has in front of her a metal sheet of some plastic metal so that it can be rolled. She has a stylus in her hand which impresses writing onto the metal. Susan asking the Daleks to hang on as she completes the sentence is a bit of business worked out in rehearsal. The Dalek should hold a magnet in his hand so that the sheet jumps and sticks to his hand. The Dalek retires to his companion and the sheet is held between them, says the script. This is slightly compromised in execution, but the slab Susan writes on can be picked up thanks to the Dalek who has a magnet in its sucker. Susan's laugh and the Dalek saying, Stop that noise! are worked out in rehearsal. When the Daleks eavesdrop on the cell, the dialogue they hear is different, with Ian discovering the listing device. But as Susan relays this information anyway, the eavesdropping is less dramatic. Back in the cell, in execution, the regulars deliver their lines as if they are deliberately misleading the Daleks. As scripted, the scene conveys the opposite. It is supposed to be delivered in a hushed, conspiratorial manner. Instead of the staged fight, Susan uses the stylus, which she has sequestered, to sabotage the listening device. This section of the episode is very different in rehearsal, with us witnessing the destruction of the listing device from the Dalek point of view and them deciding not to stop the sabotage. Amusing, notes the first Dalek, and instructive, our visitors are not to be underestimated. And then the second Dalek makes history. Then why not exterminate them, he asks, in a line that is cut but cleverly just had to survive in some form. History would not have forgiven it otherwise. And it becomes the broadcast Extermination, then! In a scene that is hugely altered, that word exterminate survives, albeit, appropriately, in a slightly mutated form. The word exterminate itself will not be heard for a while. Exterminated gets a couple of outings next week, its first utterance in the show, exterminated. But exterminate, the most mimicked and associated with the Daleks of all iterations of that word, exterminate, is not heard until the end of the year, on December the 26th, no less, in the final episode, Flashpoint, of the Dalek invasion of Earth. Back in the cell, the script tells us that Doctor Who is being rather pompous and acting like a chairman. He starts strongly extolling the virtues of winning a battle by exposing your enemy's weakness, but when pressed by a pessimistic Barbara, he scolds her for a defeatist attitude and then confesses that he doesn't really have anything specific in mind, just vague thoughts. Susan's idea of pretending to be dead and the dialogue where they discuss the metal flaws are different, with Ian being just as clueless as Barbara and Doctor Who being very patronising. Chesterton! Chesterton! Your total lack of imagination appalls me, he says. When I remember that you were a schoolmaster, it makes me glad you are now here and can no longer influence the minds of those poor, unsuspecting children who were your pupils. It's the little displays of charm that make you so endearing, Doctor, quips Ian. I can see you've made a complete recovery. Ian was to hit upon the fairground when working out the acrid smell in the air, but Barbara gets that in the final version as Ian has gained clever lines and more reasoning elsewhere, so it would be mean to completely leave her out of the teacher's ascension up the intellectual ladder during the journey from script to screen. While the reasoning is all similar, the dialogue, where they work out things about static electricity and the Dalek's eye, is all altered by the time the episode is complete. In the Thal encampment, Dione and Ganatus's exchange about the Magnadon and Antidus, who isn't even in this episode, are not in the rehearsal script at all. The team had been pleased with the design of the Magnadon, which will live in Verity Lambert's office for the rest of the year, and so they've given it a little more screen time. Aladdin and Temesis's dialogue is also very different, with the leader musing that "'Perhaps we have merely avoided our destiny,' Our race should have perished when the bombs came. Our survival was a mistake. Without help, that mistake will soon be rectified. And so his final line was, instead of the broadcast one, about having a future, originally intended to tie in with this. Perhaps we are going to cheat destiny yet, he says. Again, the dialogue in the cell in which the travellers work out the problems with their plan to incapacitate the Dalek, metamorphoses quite a lot in rehearsal. When they do paralyse it, in the script it has no dialogue, but the Dalek cries and orders are added to the scene as the action is worked out in rehearsal. The script describes the Dalek claw as It resembles the foot of a frog. It clenches and unclenches, then It is still This sequence is longer the following week, but what we don't know is whether the longer version was originally broadcast here. Next week's is definitely the same footage, but an edited version is, unusually, in the first version that we have. Now, because the action fades to black before the next episode caption, it is possible that the print we have here was trimmed by a foreign broadcaster, returned it this would not be unusual and would be solvable by comparing this to the off-air recordings of the british transmission as we have been able to do with other episodes with any bits missing notably installments of the keys of marinus but those audio recordings traditionally lopped off the closing and opening titles in order to save tape space and they only used one version of the cliffhanger either the original or the reprise But all we have from this sequence is the audio, recap, from next week. So we don't know, but we could have a slightly trimmed cliffhanger from the one that was originally broadcast. We just don't know. The Who The Thal Extras appear in the background, uncredited, in most cases in some or all of the episodes from now on. Except for two, who appear in this episode only. Franz van Noord can be seen quite clearly here, between Dione and Aladdin, when Temesis says that the Daleks are going to help the Thals. Van Noord, who moved from his native Holland to the UK in 1955, is perfect casting, blonde haired, and with the muscular physique of the experienced ballet dancer that he was. He is the only one of the Thal extras not credited in episode 7, an honour accorded to the rest of them, including Leslie Hill, despite the fact that, like Van Noord, she too only appears this week. Hill, playing Young Thal Woman, went on to win Miss United Kingdom and Miss World in 1965, the third Miss UK to win the world title. For the pair of them, this would be their only brush with Doctor Who. Someone else lasts only one episode longer, but makes somewhat more impact, and that is the serial's main guest star. Alan Wheatley Alan Wheatley as Temesis would have been very recognisable to viewers at the time definitely special guest star territory thanks to his run as the evil Sheriff of Nottingham opposite Richard Green's Robin Hood between 1955 and 1959 in ITV's The Adventures of Robin Hood. It wasn't his only evil part and he specialised in suave 'er ne'er-do-wells, and casting a well-known screen villain in the role of Temesis was doubtless welcome against typecasting for Wheatley, and his presence in a benign role would have been both welcome and surprising for the audience. He had worried about typecasting as the villainous sheriff. It becomes a bit much when one can't walk through Regent's Park without some child calling after you Watcher Sheriff. I was beginning to resent that sheriff. So are the people. Damn it all, I was once almost knocked down by a car. The driver recognised me and got out, and told me he'd have to apologise to his family for missing me. He stepped away from the role, but because he had made so many episodes, he was still being tormented after he'd hung up his sheriff's boots, complaining that children fired arrows into his garden and persecuted him with the distinctive theme song. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the Glen, Wigley had worked with William Hartnell on the 1948 big screen version of Brighton Rock. He was born on the 19th of April 1907 in Tolworth, Surrey. And after studying at Tiffin School in Kingston upon Thames, he studied industrial psychology. I was a sort of factory Freud, he observed, before joining an amateur dramatics group in St Pancras. He made his professional debut in Cambridge as Randall Utterwood in Heartbreak House. He worked for Tyrone Guthrie and Rep and Fred Terry on tour before hitting the West End in 1932-33 and he played Mosca to the Volpone of the theatrical giant Donald Wolfit. He could have gone to Hollywood but preferred to stay in the UK and started in the film business making his silver screen debut in Conquest of the Air in 1936 leading to a solid film career up to and throughout the 1950s. But nothing could ever quite exceed the impact he would make in the purely vocal medium of radio. When war broke out in 1939, he worked a lot for the BBC as both actor as part of the radio repertory company and announcer. He was the principal announcer of the corporation's European news service. He became one of the best-known voices in the UK, reading the Bible, playing Hitler, Goebbels, Lloyd George and St Francis of Assisi, and so he was obvious casting for his radio triumph of triumphs, as Sherlock Holmes. He reprised that role on TV, becoming the first actor to play the famous detective in a series. Raymond Francis was Dr Watson, Bill Owen, later Compo in Last of the Summer Wine, was Lestrade. But thereafter, his agent started to demand higher fees which priced him out of opportunities of capitalising on the status accorded him by his leading role. He was given the acknowledgement of the Sherlock Holmes Society for his performance of the famous Baker Street sleuth though, although his laid-back, naturalistic turn perhaps lacked the majestic grandeur of performers whose interpretations have flirted with being definitive. Considered one of the best radio actors there was, and a fine speaker of the verse, Wheatley, elegant and charming, was named Britain's best-dressed actor by the tailor and cutter, also making it to number five of best-dressed men in the world, sandwiched between Rocky Marciano, the boxer, and a French ambassador. He owned 400 neckties and still fitted into suits he wore at school. Dwarfing his wardrobe, though, was his record collection. He owned over 100 LPs, all classical. Described by the sketch as one of the few television actors who have never failed to give a satisfying performance and whose versatility seems to be limitless, his screen heyday was nearing an end by the time of the Daleks, after which he appeared in The Midnight Man with Patrick Troughton, in 1964 but retired from the screen in 1970 after appearing in episodes of The Avengers and Department S. He died in London from a heart attack at the age of 84 on the 30th of August 1991 and his friend director Peter Coates recalled his striking Machiavelli in The House of the Borgia as perhaps his finest of his many classical turns quoting the piece's author Clifford Bax's assessment, that Wheatley's was a fine character study, which he recalled with delight and admiration. Oh, and one more piece of trivia related to Mr Wheatley that might tickle a Doctor Who fan. He is the subject of the very first telesnap to be printed in a publication. His performance as Herod in the Coventry Nativity on Christmas Eve 1947 was part of one of the first productions to be captured by John Cura and the shot of him was published with suitable fanfare describing it as an historic event in What's On in London, a week later. References Well look, I don't come up with all this on my own. It is all gained from articles and paperwork and interviews. Richard Bignall's Nothing at the End of the Lane magazine is an extraordinary piece of archive television scholarship and reaches the parts other publications haven't managed. Mr Bignall has also supplied various bits of paper that have proved incredibly useful. And he has been on call to answer any lingering questions. If I activate the Bignall signal, he usually answers most speedily like a brooding millionaire super archivist on a quest for truth, justice and historical accuracy. Doctor Who The Complete History, edited by John Ainsworth and Mark Wright, contains so much that is useful for timelines and cross reference and is the embodiment of fastidious research and clear presentation. Lovely pictures too. Much of the material therein is based on Andrew Pixley's rigorously wrought archives features from back in the day But they also feature the work of Richard Atkinson, Johnny Morris and Alistair McGown. Howe, Stammers and Walker, with their definitive books on the 60s, 70s and 80s, and each Doctor in their handbooks deserve much praise for shaping our basic understanding of the developmental history of the entire show behind the scenes. If you've not got those books, dig them out. And Jeremy Bentham's Doctor Who The Early Years is a vital and valuable record of this period in the show's history. In both words and more glorious pictures. The TARDIS wiki page and Shannon Patrick Sullivan's complete history of time travel have also been very, very valuable for quick, handy reference. I also subscribe to the British Newspaper Archive, Ancestry.com and Newspapers.com, which are all vital resources, but also places that are very easy to get lost in for several days, so proceed with caution. I would also like to acknowledge the production notes on the BBC DVD of this story, which are by Martin Wiggins. I walk in the shadows of giants, who need to have big faces, so that they can have one eye on the television screen and the episode, and the other on the script they're following along with, to make sure there are no differences between the dialogue. And so, that brings to a close our look at an episode that sums up the major poles of Doctor Who. War and peace. The Daleks have a sexy design, the scary voices and the terrifying dialogue. One imagines a scene where they ask each other, "Ala Mitchell and Webb, are we the baddies? The Thals are definitely on the side of the angels. But despite some game attempts to give them character, it's no surprise that whilst the Daleks return again and again during the 60s, we don't see this lot again. Until 1973. And for the very first time, the question of extermination is uttered in all its mimicable glory. It takes a special show to turn ethnic cleansing and genocide into a playground back and forth, and here the Daleks are terrifying yet loved, scary yet somehow comforting, representing the containable thrills of childhood. Like boiled eggs and soldiers with a final solution. The regulars are game in this episode, using their wits and ingenuity to work out how to disable a Dalek, and doing so before heading off to try to save the lives of a Fey bunch they hardly know. Because that's what they do now. But we don't leave the action with them. We leave it with a glimpse of something that takes no further part in the story. It's a mood moment, a glimpse of indistinguishable horror that serves no plot purpose, It's just there to unsettle and thrill. Because that's what Doctor Who does. Oh, and if they call us mutations, what must they be like? Doctor Who The Escape also featured Virginia Wetherill as Dione, Peter Hawkins and David Graham as the Dalek voices and Robert Jewell Kevin Manser, Michael Summerton, and Gerald Taylor as the Daleks The title music was by Ron Grainer with the BBC Radiophonic Workshop The incidental music by Tristram Carey The story editor was David Whittaker The designer was Raymond Cusick and the associate producer was Mervyn Pinfield Coming next And so the Daleks claim the first of many casualties that they will litter the series with. And at this stage, the travellers aren't obliged to stay and help out. But it turns out that the Doctor's initial deception is going to force them into staying. He doesn't volunteer, oh no. He's drafted. Next episode, The Ambush. Or is that a gun on your pepper pot? Or are you just pleased to see me? Too much information. The Escape was written and presented by me, Toby Hayden with thanks to Richard Bignall, David Brunt, Peter Crocker, John Kelly, and Graham Kibble White. The series consultant is Richard Bignall, and the music for this podcast has been specially composed by Wayne Shepherd. There is a supplemental podcast, one per story as opposed to per episode, called Far Too Much Information, that is for now exclusive for patrons. As it's ultra-geeky, it needn't be considered essential information. But it has off-tangent trivia and extra analysis because, well, I have to reward the people who buy me the time to put these things together because, frankly, it takes quite a long time. If you were a patron, you would have listened to this at least six weeks ago. And in fact, while you're listening to this, the patrons, over there in Patronsville, they're listening to the next one. Now that's time travel. Currently, there are far too much information episodes on the prehistory of Doctor Who, as well as the pilot, the first episode, and the first four scripts written for the show. All episode one, all with subtle differences, illustrating what we could have had. There are accompanying show notes and pictures of Alice Frick, of Donald Bull, of the Coal Hill Kids, all on my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash where you can also get exclusive material, early releases and various goodies. Oh, and pictures of my dog. I know. Patrons are also nearly six months ahead with my Happy Times and Places podcast. Thanks to subscribers to Patreon who include Ashley Knight Stephen Hill Andrew Egan John Ellidge, Lee Kremin David Green Simon Coling Trevor Smith Nathan Martin Ruben Herfindahl Peter Harness Rob Leonard Stephen Moffat Richard Straw David, who I think wants to remain anonymous Please tell me if you don't, David Jenny at Bluebox99 Paul Carrington Paul Cook Peter Crocker Rob Dawson, John Deere, Chris Dunford-Kelk, Chris Fone, Jason Gorman, Siobhan Galichon, Ian Key, Joe Llewellyn, Darren Mackay, Barry Platt, Robin Bland, Daryl McLean, Pip Maidley, Nick Mellish, James Miller, Justin E. Monahan, Jeremiah O'Connor, Mark Trevor Owen, Russell Parker, Phil Pascoe, Richard Patey, Ken Patterson, Thomas Paine, John Pettigrew, Liam Price, Quaridors... Rachel T.S., Peter Reed, Paula Reynolds, Alex Rowan, Darren Rule, Gavin Rymill, Tom Selinsky, Samuel, who currently has no surname, sorry Samuel, give it to me if you'd like me to say it out loud, Edward Salt, John Sheehan, Paul Shields, Trevor Smith, Richard Smith, David Spencer, David Spofforth, Adam Stone, Paul Taylor Greaves, Jason Thompson, Sidney Truett, John Turner, Gary Wales, Alistair Wallace, Gavin Ware, Peter Ware, Rich Wiggins, and Sidney Wilson. If the Patreon thing is not for you, tears over there. By the way, start at three pounds per month, and you get a ten percent discount if you subscribe for a year. Well, you can go instead to Ko-fi, Kofi.com forward slash Toby where you can just do a one-off payment of whatever you like whenever you like if you think i sound thirsty in need of caffeine or you're just particularly flush that week but look i understand that times are tough but you know what costs you absolutely nothing going to your podcast supplier and giving me five stars for these Toby Hadokes Time Travels podcasts, and perhaps a couple of lines of positive review. That really helps to move me up the list of visible Doctor Who podcasts, because there's quite a few of them, you know, and it just makes all of this work worthwhile, because they do take a lot of time. So uh, if they can get out there to as many people as possible, I think that uh, justifies me not watching my children grow up or paying any attention to my partner. I'm on Twitter at Toby Haydoke uh, or these podcasts have their own feed at Haydoke Podcasts. If you, you know, don't want to see me talking about when I'm on Coronation Street or trying to do jokes, uh, the, the, the podcast feed just has the podcast related stuff. Uh, and you can go to my website, www.tobyhaydoke.com. Thanks very much. I welcome any feedback, so long as it's nice or politely put. And uh, thanks so much for listening. And I will speak to you next time.